Well, good evening, Lakeview Baptist Church. I want to begin this evening just by saying what an honor, what an honor it is for me to get to stand here with you this evening. I'm so thankful to see all the ways that God is using Lakeview Baptist Church for His glory here in Auburn and His glory among the nations. And I'm thankful for the ministry of this church and thankful for the ministry of your pastors, uh, which goes far beyond even Lakeview. I I get to meet with uh, Pastor Brian on Tuesday mornings in a class that he teaches on preaching and pastoral ministry. Um, I go just kind of hoping that some of his pastoral wisdom and and, uh, passion for the word might rub off on me a little bit, and that's a joy to get to do. Um, also, uh, Brother Al mentors me and a few other young pastors, and I say all that to say it is just a joy to see all of the influence that Lakeview has, not just here, but also in the community and again around the world. With that being said, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 33, Exodus chapter 33, we'll begin this evening in verse 18 reading forward to chapter 34, verse 7. And while you're turning, I want to offer a word of prayer for us. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For your Son's sake we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face and live. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. 
In his book, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes these opening words. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I want to begin this evening by asking you, when you think about God, what pops into your mind? When you think about the character of God, who is he? When you think about the God who created us, the the God who knows us better than anyone in the world, the God who knows the amount of hairs that are on our head, the God that knows the, the deep depths of your heart and the roots behind every sin that you've ever struggled with, when you think about that God, what's the disposition of his heart toward you? Let's make it a little more personal. When you hit the snooze button one too many times and your morning quiet time is cut 10 minutes short because you're in a rush now and you're hesitant to even go to the Lord with just the few minutes you have left before you rush out the door. What's the disposition of God's heart towards you as his child? When you've been convicted about the lack of patience that you have with your children and you just snapped for the third time today and you're hesitant to go to the Lord for the third time today and ask for his forgiveness, what's the disposition of his heart towards you? When you've said a little too much, when you've thought a little too much, when you let your eyes linger too long, when you took that extra bite and you're disheartened because you realize just how fickle your heart can be sometimes and how half-hearted your devotion to God can be, what's the disposition of his heart towards you as his child? When you had that argument with your husband or your wife and you said what shouldn't have been said and you think, I don't know if today is the day that God wants to hear from me, What's the disposition of his heart towards you? When you're having a really hard time with that family member who's always causing a problem and you want to talk to the Lord about it, but you're also a little hesitant because you're worried your heart might not be in the right place either, what's the disposition of God's heart towards you as his child? Sometimes I think when we think about God's heart towards his children, we can automatically just assume that he is an angry God with his hand clenched around his gavel just waiting to bring it down in wrath and judgment. Or other times we may automatically think of him as a disappointed God, as if he constantly has his arms crossed looking at his children, shaking his head with frustration. Or maybe we automatically think of him as a distant God, withdrawing from us little by little because we struggle to get our act together. A lot of times, our primary thoughts about God are maybe based more upon our own feelings or thoughts about who we assume him to be, and sometimes we can have misperceptions about God instead of actually understanding who he says that he is. So we must be very careful to understand God based not upon our thoughts, based not upon our feelings, but based upon who he is. Who is he? Thankfully, the book of Exodus answers that question for us. God tells us for himself who he is. In 
Exodus 33, God makes this very, I'm sorry, Moses makes this very bold request to God. Please show me your glory. And we know how awesome this story is. God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he puts his hand over Moses and then God passes by Moses and Moses is able to see his back but he's not able to see God's face because he says no one shall see my face and live and we think about that experience and we think wouldn't it have been awesome to be there to experience that sure it would and we love that passage because it's incredible to think about just the amazement of what Moses's experience would have been like as he caught a glimpse of the glory of God. But sometimes, I think when we read this passage, we can get so caught up in the excitement of what Moses's experience would have been like, that sometimes we can gloss over what God actually says. Do you remember what God says to Moses here? Moses said, show me your glory. And this is what God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you Listen to this. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. God reminds Moses of his name when Moses asked to see his glory. Here's what God is saying. If you want to see my glory, listen to me when I tell you my name. If you want to see the glory of God, listen when he tells you who he is. Sure, we weren't standing there on Mount Sinai to see everything Moses saw, but we get to experience God's glory as we have his self-revelation written down for us today. I'll tell you a quick story and hope that it doesn't make you think I'm a horrible person. Uh, When I graduated high school, I went to work with some of our IMB missionaries in Southeast Asia. And there was a young man, probably in his 20s, who had very recently made a profession of faith In Christ, he hardly knew anything at all about the Bible. So in just a couple of months that I was there, I wanted to share and teach him everything that I knew about the Bible in that short time. So we spent a lot of time together. And one evening, we were sitting on the roof of the house that I was staying in, because that's what people do there. They sit on the roof and and chat in the evenings, and I referred to the Bible as the Word of God. And he stopped me, and he said, hang on a second, you keep talking about the Word of God, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I have the Word of God in my room downstairs, I'll go get it. And he looked at me very suspiciously, and I said, no, it's okay, hang on, I'll I'll go get it. And I could tell that he did not want me to go and get the Word of God. So I went to get it anyway, and I I walked downstairs, I walked into the room, and I kept my Bible in a waterproof bag. It wasn't necessarily see-through, but it was a very thin bag. And I kind of realized how suspicious he was, and I thought, I'm going to have some fun with this. So I took two flashlights, and I put them in the bag, pointing in opposite directions with the Bible in there, and I closed the bag, and then I started walking towards him like this, with a glowing bag. And by the time I got to him, his mouth was hanging open, he was panicking, and he had his fingers in his ears. When I pulled out my Bible, he didn't think it was as funny as I did. 
We laugh at that story, but sometimes I look back and I wonder who had better theology, me or him. He was astounded at a God who would speak. Brothers and sisters, we may not get to stand on the mountain with Moses, but we get to hear the glory of God when he proclaims his name. This is the word of the Lord. This is who God says he is. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Let's walk through what God says about himself here. I want to share four quick truths with you about who God says God is. And here's the first. The Lord is merciful and gracious. These are the words God uses to describe himself. Merciful and gracious. I love the book of Jonah. And in the book of Jonah, God calls Jonah and he tells him to go to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And it was a city of sin. Nineveh was like the Las Vegas of its day, filled with people who hated God, filled with people who loved sin, and filled with people who hated Israel. So God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach about God's coming judgment if the people would not repent. And what did Jonah do? You know the story. He tried to run in the opposite direction. He tried to go to Tarshish because Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. Nineveh. He was perfectly okay with the judgment of God falling on those Ninevites because he thought, yeah, they deserve it. So Jonah goes the opposite direction. Going to Nineveh is the very last thing he wants to do. So that's how Jonah ends up in the belly of the fish. That's how Jonah ends up being thrown up onto the shore. And I hope it was after Jonah took a bath, but he finally decides to go and obey God, and go to Nineveh and preach. And the people of Nineveh actually listened to Jonah's message when he got there. They humbled themselves before God. They turned away from their evil. And when they humbled themselves before God in repentance, do you guys remember what God did? He relented his wrath and his judgment that was going to come upon them. He showed his incredible mercy to them. He was gracious to them. And do you remember how Jonah responded to this? In chapter 4, Jonah actually quotes a portion of Exodus 34, the passage we read just a few minutes ago. This is what Jonah prayed to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life for me. Jonah was furious with God for being gracious to the Ninevites, so mad that he actually asked God to kill him here. Jonah is so disgusted with God that he actually has the audacity to say to God, this is why I tried to run away. Because I knew exactly what you do, God. You're gracious to everyone who repents, even those horrible, horrible, horrible Ninevites. 
That's who you are, God, in the depths of your heart. You are merciful and gracious. So I knew all along that you would end up forgiving them if they listened. God doesn't say it to Jonah here, but I feel like we can hear it echoing in our ears from what we read in Exodus 33, where God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Brothers and sisters, here's the great thing about our God. He's gracious to those who don't deserve it. To everyone who repents, he relents his wrath and judgment and gives grace, and that's the good news of the gospel message, that salvation belongs to the Lord, who is merciful and gracious. Those who are once far off have been brought near to God. And as we sit in this room this evening, that's our story too. Those who are once far off have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ because God is merciful and he's gracious. But God tells us even more than that here in Exodus 34 where he proclaims his name to Moses. If you're taking notes, here's the second truth I want you to see about God. The Lord is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. When you think about the heart of God towards you, do you think that he's slow to anger or do you think that he's quickly provoked? You may have grown up in a house with someone who is quickly provoked to anger. You may live with someone right now who's quickly provoked to anger. You may even look in the mirror and see someone who is quickly provoked to anger. But what about God? Do you see him as being patient with you, or do you see him like a moody father who's ready to snap as soon as you drop the ball? I love the way that Dane Ortland explains this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, God doesn't have his finger on the trigger. Unlike us, who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. We tend to think of his divine anger as it is pent up and spring-loaded, like his anger is ready to gush forth with one little pinprick, but it's actually just the opposite. His anger requires provocation. What is actually pent up and spring-loaded, ready to gush forth with one little prick, is his divine mercy. I think we often miss out on that because we tend to be so different in our flesh. We are often quick to anger when someone does us wrong. If you don't believe me, wait until somebody pulls out in front of you tomorrow and drives under the speed limit. We are often quickly provoked to anger, ready to fly off the handle with one little offense. Did you realize that God is just the opposite of that? He doesn't fly off the handle. I want you to hear this. When you sin, when you sin, his first response to you is not anger, it's patience. And we desperately need to remember this description of God. Sure, I I think that there are times where we're hesitant to go to God's throne of grace because we're being stubborn and maybe we haven't actually been broken over our sin yet. But I think that there are also times where we are hesitant to go to the throne of grace because we're not fully convinced that God is slow to anger. We're not fully convinced that he's not waiting on us with his arms crossed, ready to let us have it 
when we get there. I think that the devil tries to convince us that that's how God will respond when we take our sins and struggles to him. He wants to tempt us to think that it's just easier to avoid God's throne of grace by keeping our distance for a few days. So just like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, we often end up hiding in our shame. Here's what we're actually avoiding when we're hesitant to draw near to God. We're not avoiding an encounter with an irritated, embittered father. We are forfeiting an encounter with a God who looks at you and says, I am slow to anger. A God who says, remember that you are not mine because you've behaved well. You're accepted because my son Jesus purchased you with the price of his own blood. Before you had ever done anything good or bad, I set my affection on you and called you my child. Before you had ever done anything good or bad, before you measured up, you were mine because I chose to love you. Brothers and sisters, this is the disposition of God's heart toward his children. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He is slow to anger. Brings us to another truth I want us to see here in Exodus 34. When God spoke to Moses here in Exodus 34, you'll remember that this encounter is after the people of Israel had worshipped the golden calf, after they had already broken their covenant with God. When the people of Israel first arrived at Mount Sinai, they all gathered together in one assembly and they decided together that they wanted to enter into this covenantal relationship with God. And you'll remember, they all cried out with one voice together saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they agreed to the terms of the covenant. But then Moses walks down the mountain walking down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments in his hand. And what does he find? The Israelites doing the cha-cha slide around a golden calf. They had seriously just received God's commandment and they had already broken it, like right after that. Kevin DeYoung says, it's like they had an affair on their honeymoon. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Really? They were immediately unfaithful to the covenant that they had with God. And what did they deserve because of their unfaithfulness? They deserved for God to leave them right where they were. They deserved for God to say, find your own way to the promised land and good luck defeating all of your enemies along the way. Is that what happened? No. God had made a promise to Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham that he would take Abraham's offspring to the land of Canaan and give it to them as an inheritance. And God faithfully took this unfaithful people on to the land of Canaan, carrying them by his presence, even through their coming years of rebellion and grumbling. Why did he do it? Why didn't he just leave them there at the foothills of Mount Sinai? Why would he do that? Why would he go with this rebellious, unfaithful people? Here's why. Not because they deserved it, but because he is steadfast and faithful, always faithful to keep his covenant promises. 
And brothers and sisters, that should give us so much assurance this evening. Assurance that when we confess our sins to God, we don't have to have that small hint of doubt in the back of our heads thinking that he might say, get it together or I'm done here. Because even if you are not abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, he is. God continued to go with his people to the promised land because God was faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham to get Abraham's offspring to that land. And we know as we read through the New Testament, the book of Galatians and other places that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham is found in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to hear today. If God was faithful to fulfill his promise to Abraham, even when sinful people were involved, how much more confidence can you and I have today that God will be faithful to the promise that he has made with his son Jesus, even when there are sinful people involved? You know what that means for us today? It means that God's love for us is not bound up in our own steadfast love and faithfulness. It's based on God's. God's love for you doesn't depend on how you're doing today. God's love for you on your best days and on your worst days is the same. It's a perfect love. It doesn't ebb and flow with your performance. God's love for you is a steadfast love, not based on what you can do from him, but it's based on who he is. So we can come before the Father with absolute confidence, knowing without a doubt that there will never be a hint of change in his steadfast love and faithfulness for those who belong to his son, Jesus. If you come before the Father pleading nothing but the blood of Jesus, there is zero chance, zero chance that you will not receive forgiveness because there is no shadow of turning or variation within the character of his steadfast love and faithfulness. When those people in the city of Nineveh humbled themselves and repented, did God say, no, they've, they've sinned far too much? Of course not. Think about the two men who were crucified on each side of Jesus. Jesus was innocent, and both of those men on each side were guilty thieves. They were two sinners on the crosses for reasons. They were criminals. And one of them looked at Jesus from the other cross, and he said to Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. And then he looked at Jesus and he said to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Did Jesus roll his eyes at that man and say, you're a hardened criminal? No. Did Jesus look at that man and think, you've lived your whole life in rebellion, come on? No. What did he say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now this man didn't deserve it, but here's the thing. God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. Everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus will find him with arms of compassion wide open, ready to give grace. And that grace goes forward to all who trust in him. 
Which brings us back to Exodus 34 again, where God reveals something else about the goodness of his character. In verse 7, God says that he will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means clear the guilty. And you may hear that and think, hang on just a second. Does that contradict everything that we've heard up to this point? No, not at all. Here's what God is telling Moses here. He's saying that the Lord does not overlook the guilty. The reality that God is merciful and gracious does not mean that he's unjust in his dealings with the unrepentant. We remember that there was another thief on another cross on the other side of Jesus who Jesus did not turn towards and say, today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because he rejected the Savior who was right beside him. God is patient with the unrepentant for a long time. He is, but not forever. The blood of Jesus does not make atonement for those who reject God's gracious offer of salvation. Pharaoh had an opportunity to repent. He had 10. But God's patience came to an end, and so did Pharaoh. If you're here this evening, and you've yet to repent of your sins and trust in Christ, I want to ask you, how many opportunities has God given you to repent? I bet he's given you more than 10. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? Thinking maybe that God's patience will continue a little bit longer, maybe until you're a little bit older, maybe until you're out of high school, maybe until you're out of college, maybe until you get some things straightened out and then you'll turn yourself around and do better. If that's you, the Bible says that you are continuing to presume on the patience and kindness of God. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 2 that you are storing up wrath and judgment for yourself. The Apostle Paul actually poses the question in Romans chapter 2 to those who continue without repentance. This is what Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. My friend, God is not unjust. He does not overlook the guilty. He does not sweep sin under the rug. If you've yet to repent, what are you waiting on? The opportunity is before you this very day. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ and be saved. Come, you weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Why would you stay in the company of the guilty when you can be embraced in the family of the redeemed? I asked you a couple of minutes ago, what is the disposition of God's heart towards you? It really depends on the answer to this one question. Are you washed in the blood? We never get beyond that, do we? This verse tells us that God will by no means clear the guilty, and that may sound like bad news at first, and it is for those who have yet to repent if they don't. But when we come back to the good news of the gospel, we are reminded as those who have trusted in Jesus, 
when we come back to the good news of the gospel, we are reminded that our guilt has already been punished. Our guilt was never swept under the rug. The penalty of our guilt was carried by Jesus 2,000 years ago as he was nailed to the cross in the place of sinners. Jesus took that record of debt that stood against us, and what did he do with it? He nailed it to the cross. And then he triumphantly walked out of the grave, conquering sin and death. My friend here today, if that doesn't tell you of the depth of love in God's heart for sinners, I don't know what does. Is that what pops into your mind when you think of the character of God? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving transgressions and iniquities, and doing it by sending his son Jesus to take the sacrifice, to be the offering for our sins, to be the substitutionary atonement for our sins by sending Jesus to die on the cross. That is who God is. What's the disposition of God's heart towards you if you're washed in the blood? It's always grace. It's always mercy. It's always patience. It's always love. It's always faithfulness. It's always forgiveness. So wherever you find yourself this evening, run to Jesus. He stands with arms of grace and compassion, opened and ready for you. There is a spring-loaded door to a storehouse of grace if you've been washed in the blood of Jesus ready to bust open and pour out on you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ that was poured out for us to make atonement for our sins. We thank you that you have been so gracious to redeem us into the family of God. We thank you for who you are, that you are slow to anger, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And God, I pray that you will take your word now and conform our hearts and conform our minds to think of you rightly, to think of you not based on who we think you are, but based on who you say that you are. We pray this for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. Your pastors will be down here if you would like to come and pray and talk with your pastors. Thank you again for allowing me to be here with you this evening. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.